Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I ran across on like the fifth page of Google, the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship coming up in two months in Spain. And I look at the contenders and there's 40 countries, Mexico, Thailand, Uganda, but no USA. So I'm like, well, maybe I should try. So I fill out the form. I get an email the next day. You are Team USA. Show up in Spain in two months. So I'm a little freaked out. Uh, it's a four-person event. So you get you have four people and you have eight hours to solve four big jigsaw puzzles. So I didn't look very far. I just went to my wife and sons and say, you want to do your patriotic duty and be Team USA? <laughs> so, and they said, uh, they said, yes, if we don't have to wear a uniform. Like, don't right. make us wear a jigsaw uniform. Uh, and in the end, I did make them wear I know, I remember that. I'm, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I could, if you're representing USA, you need a T-shirt with a jigsaw and an American flag on it. I'm sorry. It was fascinating. I went there and there are these people, the LeBron Jameses of jigsaws, and they were so fast. I mean, we finished in the eight hours we finished one full puzzle and about a third of another the russian team from these four women from siberia <laughs> they were they finished in yeah. like three and a half hours and there were a lot of you know are they doping maybe they were <laughs> i remember that I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. AJ, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am delighted to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. I have known about your work, read your books, and come across you for such a long time. So when our mutual friend Michael Shine introduced us, I was like, hell yeah, I want to talk to AJ. You have a new book out, The Puzzler, all of which we will talk about. But having heard the show, you know that that's not where we're going to start. But given the nature of your work and the books that you've written, I wanted to start by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life and career? That's good. I always love your opening questions. So I was waiting. What's it going to be? Uh, I would say I was a bit of a floater. Uh, I liked to go between the different cliques. So the, you know, there was the theater, 
people, the, the nerds, the jocks, the druggies. And I like to sort of dip in and out. And I think that that is very telling because that's what I like to do as an adult. I, I love um, almost an anthropological uh, look at the world. And uh, I think that different groups, different tribes can contribute so much uh, and you can take from them to make your own life better. So I guess I was, um, yeah, I would, I would, uh, I was a little bit of a nomad and I think that served me well. So how did that end up shaping what you ended up doing as a writer? If I remember correctly, you said your dad was an attorney, right? Uh, Right. yeah. Yeah. My dad was a lawyer and my mom was a science teacher and they both loved learning. They were huge. And my dad, uh, I got my idea, my idea for my first book from my dad, because when I was a kid, he started to read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. He didn't finish. He, he didn't get very far. He got into like the bees, like Bolivia or something. So I thought I, maybe I should finish what he began, but he gave me that love of learning and curiosity. And my mom was a science teacher who, I think was very in it. She could have been a good uh, entrepreneur because she really tried to engage the students on their level. So to teach them about the Big Bang, she had them make muffins with raisins in it so that when the muffin expands, like those are the galaxies, like, you know, that is a much better way. Mm -hmm. You're going to remember that more than just someone uh, telling you at the blackboard, the galaxies expand. Did they encourage any particular career paths? I mean, it sounds like they both had relatively stable careers. I mean, it's funny because you and I are both children of educators. And I think that we both probably share similar views on education, given the careers that we've had. Uh, But I'm curious, like, were they encouraging when you told them you were going to be a journalist and writer? Because you and I both know this, you're signing up for a life in which nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. And I, I don't remember, I was reading this book called Why We Write, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like there's, you know, a million people who want to publish a book and one of those out of every million will get published. And I remember when I got my book deal with Penguin, I told my dad, because you know, my sister's a doctor, I was like, you know that the odds of getting a book deal are lower than they are of getting into med school, right? <laughs> Just for my own sort of redemption. But uh, yeah, I'm curious, like, did your parents encourage you or discourage Like, What did they teach you about making your way in the world? They were encouraging overall, but also concerned. They, so I think they wanted me to experiment with being, trying to be a writer for a couple of years. And then if that didn't work out, go to law school or something respectable. And, uh, and luckily I was able to, uh, get a job early on out of college. Not a good job. It was a terrible job. Uh, cause I was at a tiny, tiny newspaper of like circulation 5000 covering sewage disputes and things like that so it wasn't my dream job but uh but it was a it was a foot in and i was able you know i've been able to make a living ever since so uh if not if i had been doing this for trying for a while i think the pressure would have come down there would have been some ultimatums ultimata ultimatum yeah so one thing I, I wonder about is this sort of insatiable curiosity that you seem to have retained throughout your life just based on the way that you pick the subjects for your books. And I wonder why so many people lose that because 
Stephen Kotler had this quote about what, you know, are the essential skills for thriving in the 21st century in the art of impossible. He said, you know, creativity, critical thinking, cooperation, collaboration. And of course, our school system is not designed to actually help us develop any of those skills, at least the way that probably you and I were educated. We're probably semi-close in age. Right. Well, first of all, I love curiosity. That and gratitude are my two favorite emotions drives. And I, I feel that you are a fellow uh, curiosity uh, oh, yeah. addict, which is, which is partly why I love your podcast. And, and you know who else was one? I interviewed once um, Alex Trebek, the late, great Jeopardy host. <laughs> I remember and, that in the book. <laughs> oh, you remember his quote? Uh, his quote was, and it made no sense on the surface, but it really makes sense uh, to me anyway, uh, on a deep level. He said, I'm curious about everything, even those things that don't interest me. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, I, I totally love it. And I totally get it. I am curious about everything. And I mean... When I'm at a dinner party, I I just like to interview the guests and learn from them, and they're always going to ha- know something that I didn't. And and speaking of, we were speaking earlier of books that we want to write in the future. I have this idea that I'll never do because no one's going to publish it. But like, what if I took the most boring topic? allegedly boring <laughs> like stereotype like i don't know what it would be we can do a survey accounting always gets made fun of but i am sure if you just scratch the surface accounting is going to be fascinating because it's not just about stale numbers it's about people and what they do and their motivations and their you know their fights and their loves and their businesses like that's yep. accounting well I, I know how you could make that interesting you could interview the accountant for a cocaine cartel <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> that was the uh, that was that show with Jason Bateman. Well, there's, yeah. a, there's a book called Narco Economics that this guy wrote. Uh, oh, he talked about it in Vice News, where people. He, he it was really interesting. He said, "What you don't realize is drug cartels run just like F- Fortune 500 corporations. Their operations are incredibly sophisticated." And <laughs> yeah, so yes, that would be a, a starting point. Uh, one thing I wonder is, as a parent particularly one who's had this very diverse sort of multi-hyphenate career, how has that influenced the way that you're advising your kids to make their way in the world, particularly when they're headed into a world where they're probably going to have five jobs at the same time and half those jobs probably don't even exist today? That is a great question. And it's one I, I think about all the time because I think, and I think you and I agree on this. I, when I give advice I, I'm always thinking to myself, is this true? How do I know this? Does the data back this up or am I just parroting stuff that I heard as a kid? And so in a sense, uh, I feel for my kids because a lot of my advice is, well, I think there's a 70% chance that you should drop out of soccer and pursue, but I can't be sure there's nothing certain in this world. Maybe it's a mistake. And they're like, thanks, Dad. So uh, it's <laughs> it's very hard. I find it very hard. Um, but it's on the upside. I think I'm trying to train them to be okay with uncertainty and the, the discomfort of uncertainty and lean into it because the world is so uncertain. And people who are certain of their their beliefs are not only bad for society, I think, but they're also, in the end, going to be less happy and less connected to the real world. So 
I guess that's one meta lesson I teach my kids is to to hold your beliefs loosely and be okay with uncertainty, but try everything you can and see what works. Well, you I mean that it makes a perfect segue into at, you know talking about one of my favorite quotes from the book, which is this: "You said I have one core belief: don't be an asshole, be kind to others." That one's written in pen. The rest of my beliefs are all in pencil. They are hypotheses waiting for updating on new evidence, ready for the erasers. So, I wanted to ask: What did you believe when you were twenty that you think is bullshit now? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Give me a second to think about it because I have changed my mind on so many things. Okay. Well, I'll give you one example is, uh, I was pretty snobby about, um, people's intelligence levels. So for instance, uh, if someone was a creationist, which 40%, something like 40% of America is a young earth creationist, they believe the world was created 5,000 years ago. To me, that was automatically a litmus <laughs> test. Like, they are dumb. What? Yeah. I mean, how could you believe that? But then one of my books was about the Bible and, and how much should we take literally and how much metaphorically. So I interviewed all these creationists. They are so not dumb. They are, I mean, some of them I'm sure are, just like everyone, but some of them are geniuses. And the problem, though, is that they have latched onto this hypothesis and they've refused to, uh, you, you know, they have the motivated reasoning. Whatever they see confirms, oh yes, the earth is 5,000 years old, uh, old, but they're not, they're not dumb. So, and they can't be convinced by berating them and giving them factual evidence. You have to use other strategies to convince people like deep listening and, and treating that your differences like a puzzle. How can we solve this puzzle instead of a war, which I talk about in the book? But that, that is one big one. I've, I've become much less, uh, snobby about, uh, who is smart. And it's not just people who believe the same things I do. Yeah. That, that was such a naive point of view. Well, I, you know, th- this is what I jokingly call the prestige bias, right? You ra- you're raised in an Indian family. You start to believe that just because somebody went to some elite university that they're smart. And I was like, no, I'm like, I went to Berkeley. There are a lot of people who are idiots there. <laughs> and I, I think the, the funny thing is it's not only the willingness to question other people's beliefs, but your own, that it, more so your own, I think it is so important, like being willing to change your mind and consider the possibility that what you're saying is nonsense. Uh, and so many of us are unwilling to do that. And we have sort of unwavering convictions, I feel like. And, and so what was interesting was that quote just let off this flurry of thoughts that I had. And I was telling you this morning, I was writing this blog post as a goal. If your beliefs aren't going to be in pencil, then why the hell are, are going to be written in pencil? Why would you write a life plan in pen? And mm. I thought about this and I, I'm curious like what your view is on this, because when we're young, this is one of the, the dumbest questions I've realized that adults ask kids. And that's, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, mm. you've only lived half your life. How the hell could you want to know what you want to be <laughs> when you grow up? You're asking me to make you know decisions about my entire life when I've only lived a fraction of it. Yet that is largely how people operate when it comes to career choices. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I remember very distinctly the first two or three weeks at Berkeley, I was taking a class on war and literature. It was taught by a guy who um, was like the editor of the New York Post, some guy named Steve Eisenberg. He just happened to be a guest lecturer that semester at Berkeley. And I was going to be an English major. And I walked into a career fair and there was a recruiter from Anderson Consulting, which eventually became Accenture. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, we don't really hire English majors. That was the end of it. I never took a mm. class again that I didn't think would help me get a job. And to this day, I've never interviewed Accenture and they probably wouldn't hire me. <laughs> yeah. And so as somebody who's had this career that's been sort of diverse, when you, particularly when you talk about young people at that point in their career, making decisions about what they want to do with their lives, what advice do you give them? I and mean, what is your perspective on this? I love that question. And and two, two thoughts occur to me. The first is, just like you said, don't write your life plan in pen, in pen. Do a lot of experimenting. Uh, there's a great book. I think he's been on your podcast, David Epstein. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So he, he talked in range, his book range about how we should uh, experiment with different uh, fields when we're young and try things out, try out for a year, try out for six months. So that is one important one. I also love the advice. I once saw a speech that Obama gave to the White House interns and he said, one key he believes is don't try to, don't set your goal to become a certain position. Don't say, I want to be senator. I want to be governor. I want to be president. Instead, set your goals according to your principles. Say, I am really interested in climate change. So I'm going to explore different ways that I can make the most impact. And that way you don't lose your moral compass and you'll have more of an, an impact and you'll be happier. So I love it. And, and my friend Tim Urban mm-hmm. also makes a very similar distinction between principles and beliefs. So, you know, principle in my case is don't be an asshole and hold that very close and, and deeply. But, but the beliefs, you know, how do I accomplish that? How do I not be an asshole? How can I create the most good in the world? That I am very open to evidence proving me my previous beliefs wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, you, that's like I said, I, I just I'm baffled by the fact that I made this life plan. I was like, okay, well, all I've learned is that life almost never goes according to plan. <laughs> so yeah, we had to ask any Stephen Shapiro here who wrote a book called Goal Free Living. And he said, choose a direction, not a destination. And mm, that always I like with that. Me. And I will say, I mean, it also made me think of how I try to write my books. Because I do, in one sense, have an endpoint. I want to come to a realization at the end. So I know sort of the path that I want to end at, but but the actual um, road that I take there is full of unexpected twists and turns. Yeah. So it's sort of, to me, a balance between improv and having a goal. Well, let's talk specifically about writing and creative careers, because one of the things that I always enjoy about talking to people like you is that your work predates the era of sort of social media, the internet (laughs) and technology. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel like having access to all these tools, resources, distribution channels is kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it gives you opportunity. On the other, it's also the thing that inhibits people doing their damn work and you predate all of this. What, as far as, you know, sort of habits and, and, you know, just overall craft have you noticed has changed for people who are struggling with this and and in general when it, when it comes to this? Yeah, no, you're right. And I don't have all the answers. I mean, I am certainly not, I wish I were better at social media than I am. Uh, And I, I try to, well, maybe you don't it, need to be. I mean, it's, you know, Cal Newport's know. argument is basically, uh, you know, he's like, okay, does this help me accomplish, you know, my primary goals? He uses Michael Lewis as an example. I mean, you've been prolific. You've had a successful writing career. So maybe social media would actually be a deterrent to all of that. That is true. But I think yeah, it's a tool like everything else. So it can be used for incredible good. And, and, I, and there are ways, and I can talk about that, that I think it has been wonderful for me. Uh, just to give you one example, I, I wrote a, a column for a while that I loved for Esquire magazine called um, my something like crowdsourced advice column. And mm-hmm. so people would ask me, like, how do you deal with someone on the plane who takes up the whole armrest? And I said, 
well, I have an opinion, but I don't know if it's right. Let's let's. So I I have seventy thousand followers on Facebook. So I would put it out to my followers, and I would get you know hundreds of, and I'd have to sift through all these answers to find the wisdom. But it was great. Uh, it was it was a great way to engage with the audience and and learn something. But I would say one thing I do, which is, uh, you know, uh, this is not going to be a revelation, but uh, stopping my access to the internet for twenty five minutes, I, I put my freedom software on which won't allow me to get to the internet. And I put that on for 25 minute chunks. Uh, and then I'll take a five minute break and look at the internet. And one thing that is crucial to me, I think is, uh, and it, I still do, I've done it all my life and I still do it. And uh, is to take every morning, I will uh, take a break and shut everything down and just spend 15 minutes brainstorming ideas and they could be book ideas or article ideas, but just as often they're just random ideas, you know, how to, how to, and, and by the way, most of them are terrible. 98% of them suck, but just the, the, the motion of generating ideas and getting that creativity muscle going, I find incredibly helpful. So yeah. uh, I do recommend that. And that does impact my social media because I'll come up with little ideas or jokes or thoughts that I can put on Twitter, which I think are much more valuable than a reaction Twitter. If someone tweets something that's, you know, uh, that is meant to trigger anger in me and then I immediately react with my own angry, that is not, uh, I think, helping the the public uh, discourse. Whereas if you pause and take time and and think about it in advance and then post it, that's going to be higher quality. Hmm. Well, speaking of, of public discourse, we had Cal Fussman here, and I remember asking him about sort of the state of media today versus when he was growing up. And one of the things that he said was when he was growing up, Walter Cronkite was the source of the truth. Hmm. And now it takes us back to the whole idea that the internet is a double-edged sword you have all these sort of different sources of information, you know, which I personally think information overload is making us incredibly stupid. Mm. And uh, I said, you know, I, I was saying, that I think I said mistaking information for knowledge is actually a deterrent to critical thinking because we get into this just endless consumption mode. Mm. Um, not only that, we have these very myopic viewpoints because we end up in echo chambers. Like I noticed something really interesting on Medium, of all places. Um, because I had written so many articles about productivity, I would look into my feed and I'm like, why have I not discovered anything new or interesting? I feel like I'm literally just going through a productivity porn feed. And then when I logged <laughs> out, I was like, oh, there's actually some interesting stuff here. Mm. And as somebody who has been a longtime journalist, I mean, what are the the implications of the way that information is basically being distributed for our civil discourse, our society, and, you know, our well-being. Yeah, it, like we said before, it is, it is the best of times and the worst of times. I mean, you have the best information out there. The problem is finding it. Uh, and sometimes I try to think of it in a food metaphor. Like before the Walter Cronkite era, you had, you know, you had a, a grocery store that sold, eh, okay food but it was reliable and everyone ate it. Now you have thousands of groceries uh, selling the weirdest food ever, 
And a lot of it is terrible for you. But you can also find, in addition to the mid-level grocery, you can find the highest quality food ever, like just the, you know, amazing peaches from, uh, from Tahiti or whatever. So the question is, is finding that. And that is the big challenge. Uh, and I think the key is finding places that you can trust. Yeah. And I have some, uh, some, some devices that I use, some strategies I use to figure out whom I should trust. And one big one is what we talked about before, um, is to find sites that admit when they are wrong and uh-huh. change their mind. That is huge. I'm, I'm a big fan of this group, Effective Altruism, and, uh, and they have a whole section on their site, Things We Got Wrong. And it's just like a hilarious list of stuff in the past that they, and I love that. That makes me trust them so much more than someone like Fox News, who very rarely will admit an error. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> well, never. It- well, it's, what's so fascinating about that is even on a site like YouTube, right, you can find somebody who has hundreds of millions of followers and peddle bullshit. But because of the number of people who believe what they're saying is true, mm. it actually starts to spread as truth, which is, mm. is amazing to me. I think uh, in Sapiens, the guy wrote about that, right? He said, like, basically, you know, when a group of people collectively believe something that it's, is true, then it just becomes, you know, primarily like a universal truth, even though it might not be. Dollars are useful because we all, you know, universally agree that they're good for buying something. And one of my friends said, he's like, if US dollar is no longer the de facto currency by which the world, uh, you know, measures currency, he said, then you're fucked. He said, Mm. you should run for the hills. Like Douglas (laughs) Rushkoff actually did a talk with a group of billionaires. There's an article on Medium about this called The Richest, where he actually, the question they asked him is, what do we do when our money becomes worthless? Interesting. Yeah. And how did they react to the billionaires? Well, he, he told them, he's like, take care of the people who are basically making your lives possible. Like your chauffeurs, your drivers, all these people. He's like, don't mm. just build bunkers and go hide out in them because those are the people that are going to revolt on you. Right. Well, that is when, when people talk about survivalism and, uh, and also same with like um, extending their life hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. My issue is always the people who are doing that are not people I want to hang out with. Yeah. So I think I'd rather die than hang out with these <laughs> these annoying people who have, uh, you know, bought, uh, who drink the blood of, uh, of young <laughs> 14-year-old healthy males or yeah. whatever they do. Well, you know, Alec Ross told me, he said, unfortunately, he said, we've started to build a society that's becoming increasingly individualistic. Mm. Uh, and I, this is something I said, is like, in a lot of ways, we're, constantly pushing self-interest to the point of diminishing returns. You see it on an individual level. You see it on an organizational level. It's like, you know, Travis at Uber is like relentless ambition until controversy erupts. Mm. Uh, well, I, I love that because in, in my book about the living by all the rules of the Bible, that was one of my big takeaways. You know, I, I stopped a lot of the, uh, the activities that recommend, I stopped stoning adulterers, for instance, and I did shave my beard. So I, there were many things that I stopped, but a few of the takeaways included this balance between the common good and individualism. I am certainly an individualist. I, I do think that overall, uh, it, it's produced good for, uh, for the world, yeah. but it goes way too far and we have to balance 
the uh, the good of society with that. Yeah. And because in biblical times, there was, they were not individualist. It was all about your tribe, all about mm-hmm. your family. And that was too much the other way. Well, I mean, Adam Smith said in The Wealth of the Nations that self-interest is the engine of prosperity. Mm. <laughs> that always stayed with me. And uh, my roommate used to say he said any good society is driven by some level of self-interest. I think there's a grain of truth to that because if people had no self-interest, nobody would do anything. We wouldn't build companies. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Of course, you're here to promote a book. I'm here to basically get good content for my show and hopefully other people get value from it. But there's no question there's a level of self-interest in everything yeah, we do. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think capitalism has a a lot of flaws and needs reforms. But overall, yeah. I remember I'm old. So I went to the Eastern Bloc before the wall fell and I visited Czechoslovakia, which doesn't even exist anymore. But it was hilarious because I would in the middle of the day go, you know, to a bar and the, and there would be all these people there, engineers and garbage men. And they would say, hey, let, let me take you on a tour of the city. And I'd say, well, don't don't you have to work? And he's I get paid either way. I don't care. So <laughs> it, was not, it didn't seem like a, a flawless system. Uh, yeah. And it did end up uh, collapsing. Thank God. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of things that collapse and you know get put back together, let's talk about mm. the book. Uh, what in Love the world it. prompted you to write a book about puzzles of all things? Well, I have always been a huge puzzle fan. So as a kid, I did puzzles. I, I love making pencil mazes. So I would make these elaborate mazes the size of my living room floor. And I think it informed my worldview uh, because I think I see the world as a series of puzzles and it makes it more fun, makes it more challenging. And, and I think my previous books have been uh, puzzles in disguise, like uh, uh, the Year of Living Biblically was about the puzzle of religion. The, uh, I wrote one about thanking a thousand people for my coffee, and that was the puzzle of how do you be grateful in a world where it's very hard to be grateful. And so uh, when I was trying to figure out a new book, I thought, well, maybe I should stop with the metaphorical puzzles and and actually dive into my passion for puzzles and try to figure out why do I love, why do millions of people love them? Uh, and what can they teach us? How can they, can they teach us to be better thinkers and better people and solve? Can the little puzzles help solve the big puzzles? And, uh, and I do believe that they definitely can. It's funny you say that because uh, I they just brought up a, a memory from a conversation I had with Jim Quick, and he said that he had Quincy Jones in the audience at one of his events, and he was like, "How do you deal with your problems?" And he said, "I don't have problems, just puzzles." Mm. It's like no eight years old, you got no problems, and that's what Quincy Jones's reply was. I'll send you the clip. Uh, it's an interview with Jim Quick. Yeah. I will take because that. I mean, that's basically he just summed up my book. Uh, because I do try, I mean, I love regular puzzles. I love crosswords as I write about, and the book is a lot about my adventures with these hilarious, wonderfully eccentric subcultures like the jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Those are right. amazing. They uh, are, but part of it is, yeah, about reframing your, your life as puzzles. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you say in the opening of the book is that puzzles vary wildly in format, but almost all seem to share this. They cause the solver to experience a period of difficulty and struggle, followed by relief. They provide an aha moment, tension leading to an almost, well, orgasmic ending. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I remember reading the sections of the Rubik's Cube, and I remember I also read Erna Rubik's book. And oh, after great. reading that book, I was adamant that I would not go look at a YouTube video to figure out how to solve this because he mm. said that defeats the entire purpose. He said the right. goal here is not to solve it, it's to think. And I, to this day, I can't solve a fucking Rubik's Cube. It pisses me <laughs> off. Like I've, I've managed to get like two sides and I'm just like, okay, I don't want to find the algorithm. And it's funny because we have a, a you know, uh, my brother-in-law is a nephew who can solve a Rubik's Cube in like two minutes. He'll just sit there and do a video and you're just like, I hate this kid. Um, but <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, the reason I brought that up was because I think that that struggle and difficulty is the place that stops most people, not just in puzzles, but in pretty much anything in life. And what it took me a long time to realize is that struggle, difficulty, and frustration are actually signs of progress in disguise. Yes. I love that. Oh, well, let me, there are two things that occur. First of all, 
don't get too discouraged because Erno Rubik, the inventor of the Rubik's Cube, as you know, took him one month, basically full time to solve the Rubik's Cube. So, uh, you know, you might have to quit podcasting, but you can do it. Um, <laughs> the, the second thing is, is also I'm not going to give you my, my only big hint is maybe it's not that you solve one side then another side maybe and forgive the pun but you have to think outside the box and maybe you don't solve it side by side mm. but anyway okay. um the uh oh now i've forgotten the uh, oh frustration yes a part of uh, what i tried to do in this book is to lean into uh the idea of of being confused frustrated um uh, not uncertain about things and and try to enjoy that uh, because that is a lot of life. And yes, we love the, as I say, orgasmic ending The uh, when you have that aha moment, but try to enjoy the process of solving a puzzle. Uh, and I've gotten much better at that. So if I am struggling with a puzzle, um, I, you know, my, I, I don't get angry. I just try to get engaged. And there have been a lot of people who inspire me. One of the the chapters I devote to one of the great unsolved puzzles of the world is a, a it's a puzzle at the CIA headquarters. It's called Cryptos, and it's a huge metal sculpture with hundreds of letters in, carved into it. And it's a secret code. And people have solved some of the code, but not all of it. Not even the CIA. Yeah. And the the great thing is the sculpture has been there for 32 years and people are still doing it after 32 years. I'm on a message board where every day I get messages. Oh, I think this could be related to Moby Dick. I don't, this could be the, the wind talkers from, uh, uh, from the native Americans. You know, it, they've got endlessly creative theories, but no one has cracked it fully and yet they're still going. So when I'm helping my kid, with homework, uh, you know, a math problem, and I want to give up after two minutes, I say, you know, these cryptos guys have been going for 30 years. I can give it another five minutes. Yeah. It, well, it, it's funny because even puzzles, games, like all of these things I feel like have been lost as part of the internet. And you talk about the fact that play is such an important part of our well-being. Um, I remember very distinctly, like I think it was about probably sometime in the middle of the pandemic, my sister and my brother-in-law were going home and my parents started playing board games with, uh, you know, my sister and my brother-in-law. It turns out my dad is really good at Scrabble. And mm -hmm. my sister was like, oh, you'll be great at this. She was like, you read so much. You have an extensive vocabulary. I've yet to beat the man at Scrabble. <laughs> I mean, he's undefeated. He's like, you know, the undisputed champion. And he's a college professor who doesn't read. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, well, that is, uh, well, first of all, a friend of mine, wrote a very good book about uh that just came out about play in case you want to have her on Catherine price yes oh i you know what i i think i've, I've seen that book yeah i i'm a fan so anyway yeah. i just throw that out uh but well it's i guess a couple of points one yeah i am a big fan of play and board games uh because i think they do they they teach you how to think they teach you how to think in new ways and you bring up the scramble example is very interesting because one of the lessons I learned in puzzles is, is don't just think that you're 
first instinct is the correct one. So my, <laughs> my, my first instinct when I think about Scrabble is, okay, yeah, someone who has a huge, like, you know, who's totally literate and reads all the time, they're going to be the best. But you know what? The person who memorizes the 50 or 60 two-letter words that are legal in Scrabble, like Z-A for pizza, yeah. that is so much more valuable than having read Moby Dick or, or Dante's Inferno. Uh, so you've got to sit, step back and say, you know, what strategies and what uh, situations are useful? And it's not always the ones that you think. So I learned from my dad when I played the first time I, I was winning for like three or four turns. I was like, I got this. There's no way you're going to beat me. He was like, oh, yeah. He's like, don't get so cocky. He was like, we just started playing. And did it. You know, <laughs> he, he got like one word with like three letters in it, got 100 points. And that was the end of it. And <laughs> exactly. I, to this day, not beat him. I, and, you know, it's like the ongoing joke in my family. Um, let's, let's talk about a couple of specific puzzles. Cause I know you went through all sorts of different types of puzzles ranging from anagrams to jigsaws, but I want to hit a few of them in particular that just, I thought were hilarious. Let's talk about the jigsaw puzzle because that whole story about the jigsaw competition just blew my mind. It was like, okay, that's, I mean, I, I knew there were, you know, tribes for all sorts of weird things, but you got to share this story with us. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorite adventures. And it, it was weird because, Jigsaws originally were one of my least favorite genres. I was a little bit snobby. I thought that they were, uh, they, they didn't take much subtlety or skill. I was totally wrong. I totally got schooled on that. Uh, because first, there are incredibly difficult jigsaw puzzles that will blow your mind. Uh, but second, even your regular ones that, uh, you know, of the, of a cat hanging from a tree or whatever, those, if you do them at the highest level, can take um, incredible ingenuity and skill. But anyway, I wasn't into jigsaw puzzles. I started researching them. I uh, I ran across on like the fifth page of Google uh, the uh, the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship coming up in two months in Spain. And I look at the contenders, and there there are forty countries: Mexico, Thailand, Uganda but no USA. So I'm like, <laughs> well, maybe I should, maybe I should try. So I fill out the form figuring this is the first step in a, a rigorous uh, process. No, I get an email the next day. You are team USA show up in Spain in two months. So I'm a little freaked out. Uh, it's a four person event. So you get, you have four people and you have eight hours to solve four big jigsaw puzzles. So I didn't look very far. I just went to my wife and sons and say, you want to do your patriotic duty and be Team <laughs> USA? So, and they said, uh, they said, yes, if we don't have to wear a uniform, like don't right. make us wear a jigsaw uniform. Uh, and in the end, I did make them wear I know, I I I'm, I'm, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I could, if you're representing USA, you need a T-shirt with a jigsaw and an American flag on it. I'm sorry. Yeah. So they were very nice to put that on. But it was fascinating. I went there and there are these people, the LeBron Jameses of Jigsaws, and they were so fast. I mean, we finished in the eight hours, we finished one full puzzle and about a third of another. The Russian team from four <laughs> women from Siberia, they yeah. were, they finished in like three and a half hours. And there were a lot of, you know, are they doping? Maybe they were. <laughs> I remember that. And this, and this was actually before the Ukrainian invasion. So 
But I say in the book, I'm proud to say, I say I hate Putin because I hated him before for many of his policies. Uh, but I said, you know, meeting people face to face is very important uh, for humanity. And, you know, this, I call it jigsaw diplomacy. So uh, so it was these these women were lovely. And uh, and I'm hopeful that they have not been brainwashed by Putin, but I haven't yeah. talked to them. Uh, but anyway, it was wonderful. And um and I and I'm in the middle of uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to publish it, but I'm going to do something like five life lessons I learned from jigsaws because mm-hmm. there really are tons of life lessons. Uh, and one of them, what I learned, I think it was from the Russians, which is uh, that blue is not blue. Like you're faced with that sky and you you want to give up, but most skies in the uh, in puzzles are not all one color. They get darker and lighter. So life is in the subtleties. The, you know, it, life is yeah. full of nuances and grays. And and that I thought was a nice lesson. Well, I, uh, but I, we did. Oh, by the way, just to wrap it up, we were humiliated. We <laughs> I we I, it was. I am sorry to my fellow Americans. We we didn't come in last. We did. We did come in second to last, but we yeah. did beat one of the. I think it was Portugal. I have to. Look okay, it up, but yeah, but yeah I, I, I very distinctly remember the way you described the Russians. It sounded like they were just hardcore, and they was like, "What are you going to do with your prize money?" And they said they're going to use it to go to another puzzle competition. <laughs> oh yeah, no champagne, no vodka. They are yeah. right back into it. They are hardcore, and yeah, I guess you know when you're at the top of any uh, game, you have to be yeah. dedicated. But it was. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. I, uh, and I want to go back, actually. Yeah. It, it was canceled the last couple of years. Let's talk about the labyrinth, because I th- that was another part that made me laugh out loud. Like, you talk to this guy who is a farmer who owns a labyrinth and basically says, people leave here crying and relationships end. And you're like, this sounds perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, this guy was great. He owns a maze called the Great Vermont Corn Maze that is probably the hardest corn maze in America. And as you say, he is just gleeful in telling me all, like people leave in tears. One father got so frustrated, he left his family, his wife and kids in the maze and drove off in a car. And, uh, you know, couples break up. It's hilarious. And he wouldn't, I said, I'm going to bring my son. He's like, oh no, you can't. Is he teenager? Teenage, it's, it's too hard for teenagers. They get too angry. So I had to do it alone. Uh, and it was, it was hard. I mean, I went through some emotions like, you know, there was frustration and, and false hope and glee and optimism and, uh, you know, questioning, what am I doing? But in the end, it was, it was a lovely experience. And, and I loved talking to the owner who stood up on a platform, uh, on top of it. I mean, it's a huge maze, but he would just observe the people like a god and 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 laugh at their folly. Uh, and he said one of the big problems is something we've talked about, the lack of cognitive flexibility, that these people would just go down one dead end and they'd be like, well, I was sure that this was the way. So then they'll go back. And then two minutes later, they're doing the same thing, banging their head against this one corner. He said it especially happens in young men. So there mm-hmm. you go. Uh, yeah, well, 
It's funny you say that because I was talking about, yeah, I think it was, you know, about this uh, ability to be self-aware that you might be wrong. And I said, any woman who has been in a relationship prior to the existence of a GPS has been on a date or you know, been with a significant other who refuses to stop and ask for directions. Only guys <laughs> do that. Yeah, It's just literally like I saw my dad do it and I'm pretty sure I did it more than once. But women like, I'm just going to stop at the gas station and ask for directions because this guy clearly knows where we're supposed to go. Right. That is interesting. Yeah, I know. I was, I was the same way. I mean, this is for GPS, but yeah, I think we have to, yeah, sort of re, um, we have to change our morality a bit, uh, and say, you know, it's, it's good to ask directions. Like, mm-hmm. you know, well, you get, we've, it's tricky because sometimes people give terrible directions, but it is good to be humble and say, you know what? I don't know for sure. Let me figure out the best way there. Yeah. Well, there's there's a quote about labyrinths that really struck me. You said that labyrinths offer zero choices. You follow a single winding path from start to finish. Their purpose isn't to entertain, it's to enlighten. According to labyrinth fans, walking a labyrinth can be a profound experience, a meditative and healing experience, sometimes even a life-altering experience akin to St. Paul's Road to Damascus or Steve Jobs' acid trip. <laughs> why? Yes. Why this is that? Will- like, why do people say that about labyrinths? Well, this was fascinating because I did not know there's a distinction between mazes and labyrinths. And it's a big one. Like some of the labyrinth people do not like mazes. They are very, one guy told me labyrinths uh, were, were invented by God to heal the damage done by mazes. <laughs> because, and uh, according to them, the difference is a maze is a puzzle. You have to turn left or right and you have to, you get lost and you figure it out. A labyrinth is more like a spiral, uh, so sort of those ancient symbols. And you walk in, and you get to the center, you circle around, and then you walk out. There's only one path. And I think they are both sort of representative of two important parts of life. I do love puzzles, but I also acknowledge the freedom of choice and having strong architecture is can be a very important part of life. And labyrinths uh, have this crazy large fan base that I didn't know about who basically see them as, as a way to meditate uh, while walking uh, and, or even pray. There's a, there's some Christians who are very into labyrinths. So I thought it was fascinating. I, I did, I, I've walked a few labyrinths for the book and it, it didn't blow my mind. Like I wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't like an acid trip. It was more like a nice glass of white wine. It, it was relaxing uh, you know, you were very present. You felt the grass under your feet and the uh, and the wind in your face. So it was very nice and uh, and a good exercise in in sort of walking meditation. But yeah. um, but for some people, it's like life changing. Yeah. Well, there's another quote that made me laugh, and uh, I thought it was really fascinating. You said this was about anger. You said that anger is counterproductive to puzzle solving and to problem solving in general. This is not just me talking. This is current wisdom in psychology. And then you, you mentioned this mantra. You say, don't get furious, get curious. It's a hard mantra to employ. Kids often act like little psychopaths whose only job is to infuriate <laughs> us. But I think it's a deep insight and not just in parenting. Why not try to approach all of life's problems, societal problems with the same idea from politics health to romance to friendship? And yet, anybody can read that. And tomorrow, people in Congress are going to be bickering like idiots. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I say, it is a hard mantra, but I think it's worth it. And 
of course, I've not eliminated anger. I still get furious. Uh, but every time I do, I try to remember to be curious. And um, as I said, you know, if I'm talking to someone from the opposite side of the political spectrum, seeing it as a puzzle is much more likely to produce something productive. And it's it's also more fun if you see it as sort of this cooperative adventure. You know, why? And asking the, the big puzzle is why do we believe what we believe? And that is a good path out of anger because, yeah, immediately I'll get angry after reading something in the news and then say, why am I so angry? What, you know, what, uh, what has made me have this value and is this value a good value? Mm. Uh, so I love it and it's made my life better. And I do think another guest that I can't remember whether you've had him on the podcast, but he's got another good book that you might want to look at. Um, David McCraney. Uh, I just blurred the book. Uh, oh, it's, well, the book's not out yet, but it will be soon. It's called, um, How Minds Change. Oh, you should definitely introduce him. That already sounds like somebody I want to talk to. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to do, yeah, after this, I'll do an email. Yeah. So he talks about that anger and yelling at each other never changes people's minds. It has to be this cooperative process of curiosity and exploring and trying to find um, why, what do we believe and what can change our minds? What, Mm -hmm. what evidence you have to be open to evidence that will change your mind. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, there's one final quote that I want to reference here. Um, You said that it's been my experience that puzzles can shift our worldview. They can nudge us to adopt the puzzle mindset, a mindset of ceaseless curiosity about everything in the world from politics to science to human relationships and a desire to find solutions. Puzzles can teach us lessons about a fresh perspective, compassion and cooperation. If we see the world as a series of puzzles instead of a series of battles, we'll come up with better solutions and we need solutions more than ever. So, as a byproduct of writing this book and exploring all these different types of puzzles, what shifted in your worldview? Well, I definitely do try to see everything as a puzzle and not just externally, but I try to, you know, the puzzle of myself, what, what will make me happy? What will make me productive and treat that as a puzzle and try, you know, puzzles are all about trying trial and error uh, I know this is the unmistakable creative and I know you're a fan of mistakes. Uh, so yeah, mistakes are huge and being open to making mistakes and trying different strategies and seeing what works, uh, like you would in a puzzle. And, and I'm constantly coming up with new strategies. I just started one two and a half weeks ago that I'm still doing because it's, I'm still finding it very effective. It's a weird one. But I am talking to myself a lot more. I am, whenever, instead of thinking in my head, I'm trying to vocalize it, even when I'm alone uh, or walking down the street. And, you, you know, I can pretend that I'm on, uh, you know, on Bluetooth, but, uh, but really I'm just babbling to myself. And I find it extremely effective because it makes me more aware of my thoughts, especially when my thoughts go astray and I start thinking, oh, I'm a failure or, you know, this... This person rejected me. This is the end of the world. If I hear myself say that out loud, then uh, and then it sort of jolts me. I'm like, wait a sec, that's crazy. You know, get a hold of yourself. That is that is not a true belief. So, uh, 
as I say, always experimenting, always uh, trying to solve puzzles, uh, whether it's the outside world or your mind. Yeah. I, I think there was one other quote in particular that um, somebody had, had said this to you, that everything in life is a puzzle, who you should marry, that's a puzzle, what job you should take, that's a puzzle. And with those puzzles, it's hard to know if you got the best answer. Uh, and that was in reference to crosswords, but that really stayed with me. I, I thought to myself, yeah, that is so true. How can you possibly know? I, no. In my, my life, I, I realized that everything in life is a giant experiment with no right answers. I love that. Yeah. And you can never know for sure. And another friend of mine, uh, Spencer Greenberg, great, uh, a great thinker, he talked, he said similarly, you have some people who say when confronted with a problem, Oh, there's no answer. This is impossible. Others say, uh, this is the answer. This is the solution. And there's no other answer. I'm totally right. The better thinkers say, all right, here are five solutions. None of them are perfect. They're all, but one of them is, is probably more optimal than the other. And the puzzle is figuring out not only what the solutions are, but which is the best. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you all day about this just because you have so much knowledge and experience and data points that we could just dig into. <laughs> I am uh, ready. A couple of things that I wanted to uh, allow you to, to mention to the audience. I know you said that there was some sort of $10,000 prize that people could win and some puzzle that they could solve. I'm sure anybody listening would be happy to have an extra ten grand. Oh, yeah. No, I am so excited about this. And I can say this because I didn't have... I didn't create it. I came up with the idea, but these other brilliant puzzle makers designed it. And it is a contest. If you go to the puzzlerbook.com, there will be a link and it is a contest. Uh, and what happens is in the introduction to the book, there is a secret code, a passphrase, and you can get the introduction online for free at that website. So no purchase now, even if you don't want to buy the book. You can enter the contest. You put the, the passphrase in, and on May 3rd, it will start this wild, month-long puzzle adventure where every day you get this crazy, brilliant new puzzle that'll blow your mind. And if you get through all of the puzzles in May of 2022, if people are listening uh, in the future, uh, then you enter a final round. And the final round is a race. Whoever wins the final round gets the $10,000. But I truly believe, I've tried some of these puzzles uh, and some are mind-blowingly hard. Some, you know, I can figure out. But I think you'll have a blast whether or not you'll get the, it's like free entertainment. So whether or not you get the $10,000, I, I highly recommend it. So thank you to the Greg Pliska and his team who were the ones who created the Puzzler Hunt. Awesome. Well, I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask, uh, and that's how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I do love the question. Um, and and I thought about this, and I had a great idea yesterday, <laughs> then I forgot it, then I think that I came up with the same one, but I may be calling you back and say, wait, I just remember... But I think it's what we talked about. It's cognitive flexibility. It's mm. the idea that great people are open to new thoughts, new ways of trying things. Um, and my, my first book that we mentioned was reading the encyclopedia. And I always remember this, this one 
uh, story in there that always makes me laugh because it was one of the first pivots that I've ever encountered in business. You know, the, the, that old word, the pivot, because the it was the Welch, Thomas Welch. He was a, uh, a religious man in the, the 1920s, and he created grape juice, and he decided that he would sell it to church. He was a... He was um, very much an app. Uh, he, he didn't want alcohol. He was a prohibitionist. So he would sell it to churches as alcohol-free communion wine. And he, like, you know, maybe made a dollar or something, but no, it wasn't catching on. So he and his son uh, decided, noticed that kids were drinking it. They loved So they totally changed their, their marketing and and you know, it's now a treat for kids. It's terrible for you. So <laughs> I remember, yeah, I, I, right when you said that, I was like, wait a minute, Welch's grape juice. I remember that. <laughs> exactly. Welch's grape. And you know, they made millions and millions of dollars, but it was only because they weren't uh, attached to that one idea that non-alcoholic communion wine is their path to riches. So to me, that's the sign of creativity in business and in art. Uh, always be evolved. Well, my, one of my favorite singers is David Bowie because he evolved so much. And the Beatles, the Beatles were great at evolving. They changed so much. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's funny because we opened my my second book, Audience of One, with the story of David Bowie. Really? Oh, yeah. I got to read that. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. This has been hilarious, thought-provoking. Uh, insightful. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the new book, your work, and everything that you're up to? Uh, yeah, please do. Um, I'm at ajjacobs.com is my website, at ajjacobs at Twitter. And remember, if you want to join the contest, thepuzzlerbook.com. Uh, so yeah, I hope to see you there. And thank you, Srini. I love your show and I'm, I'm honored to be a guest. Uh, thank you very much. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.